Timsa Leadership Podcast. My name is Eric Laws, and I have the honor to be able to be your host. We believe that leading yourself is the most important thing that you will ever do, and your journey to become a better leader starts right now. I have been a fan of Dr. Travis McCall's research and message for quite some time. Recently, we co-presented at a conference, and it was one of the most powerful messages I have ever been part of. Today, Travis and I are going to talk about the impacts of stress and give you some important information that I am confident will help you, your family, and your colleagues. It is truly a pleasure to share this conversation with you today. Dr. McCall, super excited that you are here uh, today, and I've been looking forward to this, to this conversation. Thanks for being here. Absolutely. Thanks for having me. I've been looking forward uh, to it as well. Well, it's great. Um, I think it would be good if we kind of just started to let everybody know how our uh, paths crossed in, in the interest. So you and I had the opportunity last year to present at the American College of Surgeons Trauma Conference in Nashville. It was a great conference, and you present it. And uh, I got to sit in that session and uh, I did the closing and was just kind of telling a little bit about my experience and encouragement to everyone. And then we got together and it was like, wow, this would be a powerful thing for us to get together and to co-present. And we did a couple of months ago to a group and the feedback was great. And that was at the beginning of conversations for this podcast. And I remember I was like, you know, Travis, are you interested in doing the podcast? And you were like, absolutely. And so that's kind of how we ended up here today. And, you know, your your research is incredible and I can't wait to talk about it. And I don't know where this conversation is going to to go. I know it's going to help so many people. So, Travis, let's go ahead and, and start with your experience. I know you have your PhD. I know you're a nurse practitioner, a critical care paramedic. And you're um, you're in the academic setting as assistant professor. And tell us about y- your journey in healthcare. Yeah, it's been long, uh, but it's been good, you know. Um, so I first got involved in EMS, got my EMT in 1994. Uh, it was an option where I went to undergrad, uh, where they had students staff an ambulance. Was really interested in that, and never worked on the student squad. I guess it probably would have interfered with my weekend festivities, Uh, but I managed to keep my license up. And after uh, moving back to Tennessee in 2001, when my wife and I got married, we lived in a very small town where she had some family and I got involved in volunteer fire service. I saw a black and gold Vanderbilt helicopter land on a scene and I said, that's pretty cool. I would like to do that someday. And went on to get my EMT IV and later pursued my paramedic, uh, worked as a paramedic starting in 2006, and went to Medical College of Georgia to get the uh, critical care paramedic. Started taking nursing classes, and in 2007 was working as an RN in the emergency department. In 2011, uh, went to a flight nurse position while I was in nurse practitioner school just later decided I had the opportunity to do some teaching as well and said, I'd like to be more involved in teaching. So I 
was working as an adjunct faculty and went and pursued my uh, PhD at the University of Tennessee and completed that in 2021 and have been in a faculty role, although still in a clinical role as yeah. well since then. So your dissertation and your research that you did, which is we're going to talk about today. So tell us what that is and why you chose to do this. This is a heavy topic and it's very deep, as you know. I mean, every rock you uh, turned over, there was more. So sure. why the interest in this? Yes. Yeah, so my dissertation was titled, uh, it looked at, at the psychosocial effects of providing nursing care to patients from a school shooting event. And my PhD was in from the College of Nursing at University of Tennessee. So it was very nursing focused. And, uh, but nurses work in EMS as well. And when I first got the University of Tennessee in 2017, day one, they say, what are you here to research? Okay. And I was like, wow, uh, that's, I got to know this today, you know? And what really set me on the trajectory was I said, you know, when I left the emergency department of a tertiary care facility to go in another role within the healthcare system, I realized that there were fewer and fewer nurses that I recognized in a very short amount of time. And I said, what is it that causes this revolving door of these very high acuity tertiary care hospitals? Whereas when I went and practiced as a nurse practitioner in community EDs, there were nurses who had started there on day one from nursing school and would retire from that emergency department. So what is it that causes these nurses to, you know, have this longevity in one ER, but yet such a short amount of time in in the large, busier trauma type center. And I don't think it's just one topic, but the topic I settled on was this topic of secondary traumatic stress. Okay. So Travis, what is, what is secondary traumatic stress? Yep. Great question. So secondary traumatic stress really was first termed by our colleagues in social work, and it's nearly identical to post-traumatic stress disorder but is the result of witnessing and experiencing someone else's traumatic event, but through a helping relationship, social worker providing care, paramedic, nurse, provider, uh, physician, firefighter, law enforcement, whatever it may be. You're witnessing but experiencing it as you're trying to help another individual. Can you give us an example of that, of how that would sort of unfold for those that are like, okay, I don't know if I have been exposed to secondary trauma. Sure, absolutely. So let's say you're on the ambulance and you roll up to that car that has a whole familial unit, uh, parents, children, whatever, who are critically injured and you are there trying to provide them the best care possible but this scenario obviously is gonna weigh on you as well as the clinician. Even though you were not hurt in the event, you're providing care to that family who was. Okay. So you you mentioned a little bit about post-traumatic stress. So is post-traumatic stress part of secondary? The symptoms are very similar. Okay. But post-traumatic stress disorder, it can be that you know, witnessing repeated adverse exposure to events. But when I think more about PTSD, there's more the components of how an individual is impaired cognitively, professionally, stuff like that. It also considers how long a duration the symptoms have persisted. 
and there's other things um, that are included in it, uh, such as the absence of any type of substance abuse. This is all coming from the the DSM-5, the, the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual of Mental Health Disorders in the fifth edition. But really, the, the secondary traumatic stress really focuses more on that helping type relationship and how the individual experiences some of those symptoms, which include intrusive thoughts and avoidance and hyperarousal as a result of that experience. Okay. I didn't think we would get here this quick, but thought intrusions, I'm going to, I'm going to talk about that. Sure. So what is a thought intrusion for those that are not aware? Yeah. A thought intrusion is kind of an involuntary thought related to the event. You know, it can manifest as a nightmare. Um, it can be a recollection uh, say even once the shift is over, that individual may be having a recollection of it or thinking about those patients or that exposure to that 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 injured person uh, when they don't want to be, uh, and any type of distressing reminder of the event that the clinician may experience as well. So, for those that are listening to to our voices, uh, so I battled uh, and Travis, you know this. Uh, post-traumatic stress about 22 years ago and as weird as as weird as it is I can is I can say that I have a relationship with post-traumatic stress now as weird as that sounds but in in listening and feeding my mind which I'm okay with and the thought intrusions which I didn't know at the time happened that was completely devastating in my mind and my experience with that was our daughter, uh, my wife and I's daughter, uh, was born in, um, it was in 1999. And I took off for several weeks. And then I remember going back to work. And man, I was struggling because that call that we want to avoid was that CPR in progress on an infant, right? We've all seen that. And if you've run one or you've run 50, you don't forget them the way that you feel. So I go back to work and I'm avoid. I, I, I will say I'm avoiding it, but it, the call just doesn't come in. But about three months into back to work, the call comes in and it's the nightmare scenario. It is call comes in, um, uh, caretakers check on the infant and not responsive. So we get the call first thing uh, during the shift. And my partner and I were heading out there and we had it all planned. And I'm, my heart is pounding out of my chest. And he's going to go into the house and get the baby. And I'm going to get into the back of the ambulance and get everything ready. And sure enough, within moments, he appears to the back of the ambulance doors with this limp infant. And everything slowed down for me. And we get the... Um, uh, patient in the back of the ambulance and we start assessing her and we think that we're finding wounds on her that she had been physically abused which was a whole nother emotion she was the same age as Rachel and so I'm I'm in my mind I'm keeping it under control but I am like I this is not good for me is what I'm thinking and then the time came for me to put an IO in her. And this is when we used the old style, not the drill. And I remember holding her leg. And as I was, you know, putting the needle in her leg, I had an intrusion. And in that moment, Travis, that patient became Rachel. 
and it wasn't a thought like it was there and to the point that my partner yelled my name and i remember like consciously waking up and looking around and thinking where am i and looking down at this patient who no signs of life and we're you know doing cpr on the whole thing and i was like wow this is not rachel and we went off to the hospital and i i remember the the patient died i remember putting her uh we we transferred care to the to the hospital and after everything was done and and she was pronounced uh dead unfortunately i walked outside and i'm like what was that i never told anybody so that is my experience with thought intrusions do you in some of the research is it a very common thing with secondary and post-traumatic stress from your experience sure i mean we all in ems have our own experiences and we've we've had some of this as well you know i'm i'm not afraid to admit i experienced you know especially from my you know my pre-hospital day uh, you know experiences and you know i heard about some of it when i was interviewing these nurses who had taken care of these patients from the school shooting you know they one described uh, nightmares okay. uh, of trying, we're trying to get students behind bleachers. Um, so that's a common one as well um, that, that I had heard. And, you know, just thinking about, it, it, it doesn't have to be as vivid as usual, but just thinking about yeah. those patients. Shifts over, clocked out, went home, thinking about those patients for a long amount of time. And some of these nurses I talked to, it was 18 months later, two and a half years later and they could vividly describe their um uh, you know their discussions and their experiences with caring yeah. for these patients and they said you know that's not normal you know especially in a busy hospital where yeah. you're turning over a lot but they they clearly could remember pretty much everything when they had take, provided care to these patients and had had reflected on those experiences as well so are in some form or fashion would you say intrusive thoughts because of what we do in healthcare and normal well normal normal is an interesting word to think Mm -hmm. about it i think they're very commonplace Um, i think there's things we can try to do to manage these thoughts so that they are less detrimental when we leave you know nobody wants to take that home to their family you know especially if they have a family member who doesn't work in healthcare and is probably happy to listen, but doesn't have that same type of experience to be able to say, oh, I know what you, I I fully understand what you're going through because that may not be the case. I want to go back to your comment about common. So, you know, in in presenting, I've I've presented this, my story personally, Mm -hmm. um, you know, all over, um, in, in several states and I remember a provider that I was talking with and I had shared my experiences with thought intrusions and he came up to me afterwards and he was like wow I didn't know that's what I was dealing with and once we had the conversation he was telling me this that I've been able to keep them in balance since so do you think it's fair to say that when we battle within and we don't think it's common and we fight this and we're like, wow, I've been having thought intrusions for years, but nobody told me that it's a common thing. What do you think about that with, you know, really being able to open up and be like, you may experience this with some of the horrific things that we see in our, our career? 
Yeah, absolutely. You know, what was really interesting to me when I was in the doctoral program, I went to EMT school, critical care paramedic, nursing school, uh, both associates and later a bachelor's, and then a master's. And it's when I'm finally in a doctoral program that I took a cognate course through the uh, Department of Social Work okay. called Trauma Treatment of Adults that we spent the first week and a half on self-care. And I thought, where has this been the whole time? You know, if if we could get this incorporated, and I know I do it in my courses, yeah. incorporate some of that kind of here's what you may experience, here's what this is to raise awareness, and then also work in here's the best, here's some evidence-based ways to try to manage, I wouldn't say avoid, but kind of manage or mitigate some of the more severe symptoms that if we could get those out there, that there would be a huge benefit there as well for clinicians. Let's go with self-care, okay? So that is something we hear about. But the scenario that I think plays in my mind would be the, I think we've all had stress relievers, right? Some maybe are healthier than others. But what about, you know, the team members that are trying to mask the pain with uh, drugs and alcohol, which we see that. And so let's talk about self-care. So there's different degrees of this, but what are some general things that we need to do to help? This is brutal. You and I both know this, and we're, we're fighting this every day in the anticipation of going back on the ambulance or the helicopter, knowing that your next call could trigger something that you've seen, regardless of the stage, you know, of your, of your, um, of your career. Like, you know, maybe your parents are getting elderly and you dealt with an illness or you have a child. Yeah. So let's talk about that. What are some of the things self-care we can do? Yeah. You know, self-care is a huge part of it. Um, I think it's, as I said, a part of it. Uh, we all work as we know, very hard to get where we are. Yeah. And we want to have good, productive, fulfilling careers. Self-care is a part of it, right? You know, we want to be available and, and do a good job for our patients and have that good career. And having hobbies is a big one, you know? Um, as you and I have discussed, I'm really good at this about three or four months out of the year during yeah. hunting season, but the rest yeah. of the year I probably fall short. Um, so, you know, maybe fishing, I hear a lot from people, uh, they like anything outdoors, you know, hiking, camping, whatever it may be, um, uh, having that good outlet though, rather than those negative actions that you describe, such as alcohol and drug abuse, which can sneak in as well beyond self-care, you know, we need to support each other. And, uh, you know, we can talk more about that. And I also think the organizations and the agencies that these clinicians work for have a responsibility to also provide some of these services um, to help, you know, mitigate the negative effects that can occur with what is the routine parts of some of these challenging jobs. And for the new providers that are getting into the field. So my son, Chris, is an EMT and he's getting ready to head off to school and you know we'll work part-time and you, for all of those are new that are entering the field I, I i have a sensitivity about this because they're getting ready to be exposed to things that they've never seen before where you and i see it on a weekly basis right you know someone that has a like a significant trauma experience 
that um, is changing their life. Where these new providers coming into the profession, regardless of their age, they're getting ready to be hit with this and they don't know how to process this info. So what do we need to do for those individuals that don't know what they don't know and they see it for the first time? Like they see, I'm just using an example, they see a pediatric death or a fatality or someone that they did CPR on and they got a pause back and then the patient dies in the ED. How can we set those individuals up for success when we know that there is going to be tremendous life-altering exposure? Yeah, great question. We, we need to be really proactive with Bigner to support them. Um, similarly, although less direct, my nephew is recently got his EMT license yeah. and he, he's in college and he wants to go to medical school and he was told, you know, appropriately, hey, get, get some, some experience in a healthcare field and he chose EMTs interested in emergency medicine. And he started working on a 911 ambulance and I told him, hey, look, you get into something, you need to call me. Yeah. You know, let's talk about it. Yeah. Um, and, you know, it could be, you know, the partner on the ambulance. You know, we need to be more open with communication about these things and, and talk about it. And, you know, because nobody is better going to be able to describe or understand the emotions related with it than somebody who's been there, done yeah. that, and also who was on the same call that may be causing the, this type of distress. So one of the things that I learned with him, with Chris, during some of his clinicals, and this all came from years of experience, right? You and I are have been doing this for, it's kind of like, wow, I can't believe I'm 53, but, you know, doing this since 16 and a paramedic since 20. And so when he would come off of, of uh, a clinical, my approach is a little bit different now, would be to ask him questions and say, did you know, tell me about your events. Tell me about the calls that you ran. Let him open up and lead into it more with a question as well, but also just share my experience. Like, wow, I remember my first event. It was really tough on me. I'm happy if you want to talk about that. That really seemed to be the gateway. And he was a little bit surprised when we started talking. Uh, like, wow, that bothered you too? I'm like, yeah, Chris, like, you know, although I've been doing it a while and I don't talk about it, the the emotions that you're feeling are exactly what I felt. And um, but you know, really being able to approach the providers and we as leaders in healthcare, we really need to reach down to these individuals that are new and truly ask, "Are you okay? Is there anything I can help you with?" Instead of the stigma of, you know, burnout paramedic or burnout nurse and be like, I hate to use these words, but we've heard it, suck it up. If you can't do it, get out. That is uncalled for. Now, we can't do that. And I'll tell you, Travis, interesting enough, maybe I've done that before years ago un unconsciously because I, in my spirit, I've never been able to do that. But when your son is going through that, it completely changed that because I care about him, his well-being. And now it was a little a wake-up call. Like, I need to do that with everybody that is exposed to any of these uh, traumatic things. But you're right. We have an obligation and a responsibility to, to reach down. So, Travis, let's talk about in the event of the provider, and we'll say the new provider or the experienced provider, that they have that event 
that they have and they're like, man, I can't stop thinking about this. Or I close my eyes and I see the image. What are some of the things that we need to do as leaders or um, the service directors or service supervisors when the call meets the criteria for something significant that the providers may be having a hard time, but they're not going to come out and say, I'm having a problem. What do we need to do um, you know, with resources with those individuals? Yeah, again, great, great thought. We need to be more proactive with this. We don't want to be reactive on the on the backside. So in the air medical program where I practice nurse practitioner, I've got a great group of folks and we run kind of a peer support type organization. And it's very informal. Um, you know, I've already talked about the great work of our colleagues in social work. And we had a social worker come train uh, some of us on, on how we do this. And it's started as word of mouth and we've now built it into the formal debriefing process um, uh, which is completed after every flight not really an emotional debriefing but a logistical and uh, clinical as well as operational debrief but was this a challenging flight was this something that involved say pediatric trauma is one uh, aviation safety event um, unexpected death of a patient anything like that and we proactively reach out to that individual it may be as simple as a text Mm -hmm. or a phone call hey i understand you had a really difficult flight uh, this afternoon i'm available all day if you want to talk about it and some people are like you know i'm actually doing okay and i'm like all right the offer stands you just let me know if you want to talk about it and then on the other side i've had really tenured people that it was almost kind of intimidating that they wanted to talk. I'm like, oh, wow. You know, this is somebody who has a lot more experience than me. But sometimes that's just listening. They just want to get it out. They want to share those feelings with somebody who may not have had the exact situation, but something very similar. Yeah. Then beyond that, sometimes, you know, if I just really pick up that somebody's struggling with a transport, I really encourage them to use those professional resources you know, employee assistant services, talk to a professional, go to a therapist. Um, You know, there's, there's resources that, that hopefully employers are providing. Uh, If not the employer, sometimes the state organizations will offer this and get out there. These people are experts at what they do. They're going to provide some valid and useful coping mechanisms to help get through that. Because like I said, we all work very hard to get here and we really want to avoid that that compassion fatigue that can come along and then that eventual burnout that you yeah. also described that we hear. You know, I had to, for that social work course in my doctoral program, we had to pick someone from a movie and do an analysis on them. And I'm sure you remember the movie Bringing Out the Dead mm-hmm. with Nicolas Cage. I remember seeing it in a theater when I was living in New Orleans. And I asked the instructor, could I use Nicolas Cage from Bringing Out the Dead? And she was like, perfect example. Yeah. So, you know, that's what we think of that we want to avoid kind of slipping down into that 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 type of stress and that, that burnout yeah. that we see in that, that character in that film. So let's go back to peer support. So is it accurate to say peer support is our colleagues professionally that work with us? Is that correct? Absolutely. Okay. Yep. So, um, I'm a fan of this and I'll, I'll share with you. There was a point that you had mentioned that I want to go back to about being intimidated to call your peers because of their professional level. 
there was a, a situation that I had that I got notified. It was a it was a bad flight, and there were friends of mine that were on the flight, and I got notified after the event, and it was like, hey, you know, such and such crew just had a horrific event call. And I'm just letting you know, and of course, you know, working, you know, within the healthcare system, you know, people know me for my story and I'm not afraid of it, you know, to share. So I remember, Travis, I am at my desk and I, I have that resistance that pops in like, I don't know if I want to call. Like I'm, I'm like talking myself out of it, but I already made the decision, you know, years ago that I'm going to reach out regardless of how comfortable it was. Man, and dialing that number was so hard. And this is how the conversation basically came to be. As I said, hey, you know, I just heard that you guys just had a horrific call. And I just wanted you to know that I'm here. You know, you don't have to talk about it, but I just wanted you to hear my voice to say, I am here for you. Travis, it was like I unlocked a vault and for 30 minutes, he unloaded on me every single detail about the event in such great detail that I felt like I was there with him. This was the fascinating part is after it, after the conversation, he says to me, oh my gosh, I feel like I vomited all over you and I am so sorry. He didn't even realize what he was doing, but it was his mechanism of decompress. And I think the reason that I had such resistance, because I, I'm not a professional, I can't help him, but the listening part was something that we don't do enough that was such a lesson for me. And we talked about that after the event, but he needed to do that. And I happened to be his sounding board. But that peer support is so powerful because, and we, we talked about this later, you know, why did you feel like you needed to unload on me? because he trusted me and he knew that I knew what he was talking about versus someone outside of our sphere that I'm not going to tell you the details. Like I'm not going to go home and tell my wife what I worked because she's going to look at me like I got three heads because she can't appreciate it because she haven't, she hasn't been in that situation. This peer thing is important that, uh, I don't want to, I, 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 I don't want to underplay this, but we all have a responsibility with our, our, our team members because professional counseling or support, there's very few and far cases where that actually happens, but we as providers can all reach out and say, hey, are you okay? Let's talk. So uh, any comments on that or experiences? Yeah, absolutely. You mentioned bringing that home. You know, I, I've in getting some data yeah. uh, with colleagues, I learned that most of them, um, you know, preferred a or, or relied on a family support system okay. or that they relied on one that they said, I go at it alone. And I found that there were statistically significant increases or higher scores for secondary traumatic stress and burnout among those clinicians who said, I go at it alone. Wow. And they were much lower. I don't want to say much, but it was statistically significant lower for those who use their their family as their primary support mechanism. And as you mentioned, that's great if your spouse or, or partner does the exact same thing as you. But if not, how does that affect the familial unit to bring that home? You know, my wife is a biology instructor, 
and I don't go home and talk about what I did on a flight shift. She may ask and she may be happy to listen, but she's never been there and she hasn't done that. Whereas if you're able to shift that more from the household back into the workplace with those colleagues who know what you may have experienced, who may have had similar experiences, I think it not only benefits the clinician, but it also benefits the home life as well because you're not burdening somebody else now down with a domino effect of here's this horrible event that I was involved in that then may detrimentally affect them as well as your relationship with the individual. Carrying this home, um, you just be vulnerable for just a second. I think we've all been in the situation where we're so tired. We've we've had one of those shifts. You know, we've been up all night, and we get home, and somebody breathes the wrong way, and you turn into a two or three headed monster, and you just you 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 lose it. And the next thing you know, an argument erupts. And they're looking at you like, what is your problem? And then that's the beginning of, you know, relationship challenges. And that's, it's almost like a, a, it's like feeding the monster. And, um, you know, I can admit that was me years ago. And I'll make a a point about this that I want to talk with you about is that is not okay to do that. And, you know, Clarissa, my wife and I will be married 30 years in 20, um, you know, 10 years or 11 years was in my uh, relationship with post-traumatic stress that was, you know, changing over time. But now there's such a sensitivity for me about respecting her stress at work. And although I don't have to tell her what I see at work, it's not an excuse to be miserable at home. And when I do, when I've had one of those days, you know, there is a mutual understanding that we take a break from each other. Like I know when she comes home, what kind of day she has and vice versa. But you had mentioned about taking time out to recover so you don't approach a relationship and say something that you regret or you you cause tension in the relationship because relationships are tough enough and then you add dealing with high intense stress not just medicine, but everybody's. Your your wife, I'm sure, has an incredibly stressful job. My wife. But let's talk about the responsibility of taking that time out at home and what that does and is that good for the relationship? What's your experience tell you with that? Yeah, good question. You know, I, I'm big on taking a break at work if you need it. Okay. You know, if you have a really difficult flight, maybe reaching out to your leadership and saying, Hey, I I, I need to push pause okay. here and maybe be able to process that while still at work versus having to process it as you walk through the door. Um, so that would be an obvious thought on, you know, on that one. Um, but you know, I, 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 I guess I'd have to get a better answer from her on that. Like what kind of, how long do you feel I need when I walk in the door before I, you know, are handed a crying child that says, Hey, I've been in charge for 24 hours now while you've been at work. It's your turn. Yeah. And that can be really hard to flip that switch yes. and jump from, hey, I'm now going from the aircraft or the ambulance and now I'm back in a caregiver role. Right. That That's a pretty abrupt shift of gears there to make. Um, so I don't, you know, I don't have a, 
hey, this is how you would do it kind of thing. But it's something that maybe by being aware, hey, this is going to be tough for me to walk in the door. Maybe just having your family, having those conversations up front of I'm going to have these challenges in this role and I need the support and I don't want to unload on you when you get there. Just know I may need a little time to process before I'm ready to take over uh, that parenting role when I walk in the door. That would be my thought on that, on how to best manage that. So structurally, so that's what Clarissa and I did. And and some of the things that I have shared, you know, we do in this presentation is I, I call it during times of peace where her and I have talked to say, you know, with each other, listen, there are going to be days that you come home and you're going to have one of those days and you don't have the capacity to walk in and me say to you or you say to me, what's for dinner? Like you just can't go there. So what can we do to better that relationship? So this is how it has been designed for us early on now. It's automatic where if I come home off of a shift, specifically, you know, off of a, a 24 and I come home and I'm, I'm spent, <clears throat> I can't talk. I have no energy for anybody. I literally have a, barely have enough energy to take a shower and go to bed where I come in and the example would be, we have plans and I walk in and the mutual respect is there and I am, I, it would be something like this. I know we had plans. I had one of those nights, I I need to go rest. I need to take a break. It's gonna take me about three or four hours where there's no pushback from her. She knows that, that that's what I need before I can re-engage into a relationship. But here's the interesting thing, Travis, when we talked about that, the mutual respect that we have for each other, when she walks in and I feel that, there's no pushing now. It's like, I know she's had that bad day and you go do what you need to do and hey, I'm gonna take care of this. So that sensitivity of that respect about the timeout, my my point to this to everyone is it's not just us that has bad days. We all have bad days and we're all gonna have to coexist in relationships, even with my kids, right? Or years ago, they would come home and they're freaked out about a test. That's very real to them. I'm not you know, underappreciating that, but they come in and they're stressed and they're ill. And it's like, hey, why don't you go and take a break and then come back, even if it's structured and it's like dinner, just take you a snack, go, come back when you're ready. But communicating is so incredibly powerful that um, I don't, it, it's not easy, but we have to be intentional about that because we need people in, in our lives to be able to do that. Travis, let's talk about burned out, you know, being burned out. Have you ever been burned out? Uh, absolutely. Yeah. You know, when we think about burnout, it's just being, you know, you just don't want to, but it's, it's a full, like a, a constellation of things. It's involves, you know, that, that lack, it can be a lack of empathy. It can be a cynicism about your, you know, the position, um, stuff like that. And, and yes, it absolutely happens. And, uh, to the best of us, and in addition to burnout, you can have that compassion fatigue that, that burdens really not only the individual, but also those that they're in their role, they would be providing care for. Yeah. Uh, <clears throat> I have been asked this question too. Have you ever been burned out? Yes, I, I have too. And it has come in seasons. And I, I like to look at, you know, our relationships with 
you know, with stress and in what we do, uh, there are seasons of your life that are going to be very emotional and very stressful, and but they will too pass. And um, so, yeah, I've been burned out numerous times. The difference, I think, for me now, and, and correct me if I'm wrong for you, would be I know what it feels like and I don't freak out over it. It's like, this is where I am. There are some healthy things that I need to do to ride the wave and then I'm going to feel better on the other side of it. So, I, and the reason I ask you that is, you know, I, I think some of the providers that are listening to this, like, what do I do if I'm burned out? And um, l- let's talk about some healthy habits that help you to um, to not get 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 caught up in just the past and just you know letting your mind drift to those calls and to those situations you know any healthy habits that you have that have helped you deal with i'll use the word resilience yeah you know resilience is important especially can be you know kind of bolstered with that self-care that we talked about yeah um having those things you look forward to at you know when you're home or you're away from your shift um having that that compassion satisfaction is a term used you know a lot of times when we get involved in people's lives although it's only for a short amount of time we uh, you know we this may be the this is a huge event for the individual right and to be able to say you know you were able to do some good for somebody at what was very possibly one of the worst days of their lives and and feeling that fulfillment there and knowing that you did a good job and you although we know they don't all have the outcomes right. we would like to know that you did your best for them and you do have that that satisfaction in that relationship and then trying to help that that individual yeah. you know that that empathy towards towards the individual so that's something that readily comes to mind and okay. then you know uh, uh, and, and we've talked about peer care and offloading mm-hmm. and getting help when we need it all these things so we don't get to that point of burnout that you go wow i am totally emotionally physically and mentally exhausted from this what do i do now whereas if we've been a little more aware a little more proactive along the way that wouldn't be you know we wouldn't be trying to reactively manage and more we've been more proactive proactive with with mitigating some of this yeah the proactive part for me travis was um so important because you know, years ago, I've been on this personal development, personal growth journey, and you know, I am—I I have a hard time reading; like, I can't sit still. So I started um, listening to audiobooks, and it's still a habit of mine in podcasts. And one of the interesting things that I learned, and I, I do it habitually, like it's—it's it's a part of who I am. Getting in the car and hitting play, but what I have found over the years was it's changed the way that I think. And that was such a powerful thing to get me outside of my my thoughts. Like I'm not powerful enough or I'm not strong enough to change those without help. And I realized that. So that's why that is such an important part for me because listening to other people, it has completely changed the way that I think the way that I deal with problems. And there's a, a, a bunch of different podcasts that I listen to, but that has been a healthy habit for me. It, it's changed so many relationships for me. It's changed the way that I feel, but it gets me outside of myself. And that's just such an important part when we're living in this 
very, very high intense um, um, career of seeing things on a weekly basis that most people don't see in their lifetime. Um, and that, that has been a healthy, you know, habit for me that I try to share. And it's like, I am not good enough to do it on your own. Why not get the help? The resources are out there and there's like, oh, I don't have time to do that. I don't buy that. That's an excuse. Like we have to own this in our lives. One of the books that I read that uh, I share, and we got to see one of the speakers at the American College of Surgeon Trauma Conference, Extreme Ownership, where it was like, you got to own everything in your life. There's no excuses. Like you got to, you got to be the one to be like, I'm going to get through this and I'm going to take the bull by the horns and I'm going to fight through this and not cast blame on my service or that patient did that to me. You know, we, we got to take a higher road to this, to, to, to be able to own this in, in our lives. So, you know, that, that has, you know, certainly worked for me and uh, several people that I've, um, you know, had uh, conversations with us. So, you know, where do we go from here, Travis? So, there's a lot of information here. This is something that you and I could talk about for hours. But you know, any any things that we didn't talk about that you feel is important to share to the providers? No, you know, I do want to circle back. You talked about you know taking ownership and being in charge. That is a huge part of it, but. You know, when we talk about resilience and we talk about, um, you know, the need to maintain that self-care regimen, sometimes these things just go beyond what the individual can deal with on their own. Yeah. And that's when, you know, leaders, uh, colleagues at work, whoever really need to get involved. You know, yeah. I use the analogy, you know, we do a great job of taking care of others, but we oftentimes don't take very good care of ourselves. And again, we're not sacrificial lambs who have gone into this career and we're just going to take all the punches and be totally responsible for owning all that individually. But we need to take care of each other, um, ourselves at the same time as well. But identifying those resources and, and, and leadership, affording those resources to have them, you know, to put them out there to help the individuals who who want to have this fulfilling career, but not at their own detriment because, yeah. you know, that's, you know, it's not the way it should work. Right. So the hardest thing I ever did with my battle with post-traumatic stress was telling my wife and it was letting go of the I'm in control mentality that we've all had of being on the call. And I remember sitting down and telling her, Hey, I'm having some challenges. It flipped her out, and I never was fully transparent. She's like, you know, you you need to talk to someone, and I'm thinking, you have no idea because I'm not even telling you a tenth of what's happening. But I did, and although very very tough for me to admit it, it was the most freeing thing that I ever did. So for those individuals that are listening that are thinking that they can battle this on their own, I'm going to say, don't do it on your own when there's people that are trained that can walk this journey with you. It doesn't end well. Travis, I can tell you, and I hate to even admit this, in my 30 plus years, I try not to count 
but I can tell you that it's probably been over 10 of my previous colleagues that have died by suicide. And I, I don't like to talk about it because I'm like, wow, you can't do it on your own. No. So um, you have any you know, comments about those individuals that are like, I, I got this, you know, yes, I drink a little bit or, um, you know, I'm numbing the pain, which we've heard that. What about those individuals? How important is it for them to, to know that they need a life preserver? And is it okay for them to reach out? Is it a sign of weakness or strength? What do you think about that? Uh, it's absolutely not a sign of weakness. You know, this is tough. I, I was a new paramedic and I worked that nightmarish call that we never want. You know, you described one of your own. This was a father who didn't see his child in the driveway when he got home from work. And the child was was obviously deceased. Was you know we really couldn't do anything. But I remember trying to reach out to my partner after that. I said, hey, "Are you okay?" And I think in a way it was my way of hoping that he would say, "I'm okay. Are you okay?" And he's the response was, "I'm old school. You know, I'm fine." Right. And it stopped there. Mm -hmm. And I. I, I went on and then the next shift the director came in and said oh what happened somebody were you on that call blah 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 and i i said yeah i, I was and that was the end of the conversation and those were two missed opportunities for somebody to say hey let's talk about it and you know this has been now 15 years ago and not a week goes by that i don't reflect yeah. on that call and how i would run it differently and retrospectively questioning everything about it and just wishing that i had kind of dealt with it so so no it's not a sign of weakness you know i you know can personally say i i really wish i had dealt with it at that time and it it could have been something as simple as just a conversation with one of those two people um and i know i have peers who have gone out and used some of those professional resources and i've never heard any one of them say wow that was not the right decision they're like hey, I went and did this, whether it's brain spotting or EMDR, which please don't ask me to explain them to you yes. because I just can't do it. It's outside my professional wheelhouse. But, you know, these resources are like, it really helped. Yes. And I think, like I said, being proactive and not reactive is it would, would will make a huge difference. The resources are there for everybody listening to us. Don't fight this on your own. And if you talk to someone and they don't help you, go to the next person. There are people out there. You may have to sift through, but uh, if, if your service is not helping you, reach out by all means and somebody, somebody can help you. Don't do it on your, your own. You know, professional counseling is important if you're having you know, uh, relationship challenges with your, your family, your kids, etc., you know, have somebody help you. The older that I get, the more that I realize I don't do life alone and we are not designed to do life alone. And we, we need our brothers and sisters to uh, be able to help us get, get through these challenges. Travis, tell us where, um, where we can find out your, um, more about your research. I know it's been published, but can you share where, the, where they can find that? Yeah, absolutely. Thank you. So um, I did, when I did my dissertation research, I started in the emergency department of a hospital that had received five patients who had been injured in a school shooting. And I did some qualitative interviews with them and analyzed that. And that was published in Journal of Emergency Nursing. And then I had the thought, all right, well, I've talked to emergency nurses. 
And, you know, the ER, 20 minutes with the patient. You don't know if they get better or worse, so you don't really get that closure. You're not interacting with family members, so you don't get that. And I thought, what about the trauma unit, right? So they're like 12 hours with the patient. They see, hopefully the patients get better. Some unfortunately do not. They're interacting with the family. And so I repeated the study with the benefit of my dissertation committee also analyzing that data. And that was published in Journal of Trauma Nursing. And then I'm happy that I recently uh, published a study in the Air Medical Journal that really examined peer support for mitigating that uh, secondary traumatic stress, compassion fatigue, and burnout among air medical clinicians. And that uh, is coming out uh, right now uh, as well um, in the current uh, issue. That, that is incredible. Well, we, we're grateful for the work that you do, Travis. I know that this message in this conversation is going to help so many people. And we, we're honored that you spent the day with us. And um, I'm excited. And I look forward to doing other projects. I know there's going to be more opportunities for you and I to co-present. And that was a, a certainly a joy. But thank you so much for taking the time with us today. Absolutely. Thank you for having me. And I appreciate you know the mission of the podcast and trying to get this to, to as many folks as possible to raise that awareness and uh, to help you know those who try to take care of others. On behalf of TIMSA, we are grateful that you joined us here today on the TIMSA Leadership Podcast. Please share this episode with your family, friends, and your colleagues, and give us a five-star rating on whatever app you use. Until we meet again, thank you for what you do. You make a difference.